Hello and welcome to the Dilaparam All-Rounder podcast. It's the 28th of October. It's around 9am and we are recording about the Arsenal-Barcelona Champions League final in 2005-2006. Sanjay Ramaswamy is my guest. Sanjay, we were just watching the Australia-New Zealand World Cup game. Great game, wasn't it? Fantastic game. These Australia-New Zealand games are always close. I remember the 2015 World Cup where Mitchell Stark took six wickets and New Zealand won by one wicket in the end. It was a pretty similar game, but high scoring this time. We're talking football today, the Champions League final. It was a match between, as I said, Barcelona and Arsenal. It was Barcelona's fifth appearance in a Champions League final and Arsenal's first, played in Stade de France on May 17th, 2006. Before I get into that, Sanjay, can you just give us a little bit of a rundown as to how you started getting into football? I know you're a bit of a fanatic nowadays watching a lot of Arsenal's games, but do you want to just go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I think you mentioned on a couple of earlier podcasts, I think the one with Aditya um, on Liverpool um, and the Leicester Premiership. But I think growing up, uh, when I was probably, you know, before I was a teenager, I was definitely a fan of cricket. Cricket was the, the sport that I spent the, the most time on. Football was more of a, you know, I'd like to play it, um, but I didn't really watch much of it because you couldn't really watch it on free-to-air in Australia. And then that kind of changed, I think, early 2000s. Um, you know, on SBS, there was, you know, a weekly show about the English Premier League every night, Monday um, at 8.30. So I was watching some of that with you. Um, and at that time, you know, Arsenal was with Manchester United, the, the number one and two teams in the English Premier League and watching them, um, every Monday night, they would just score heaps of goals, play good football and, and win games. So I started getting into Arsenal just from watching those highlights and we were really good at the time. So I fell in love with Arsenal, I guess, in the early two thousands. And then from then on, it's just been a love affair. What's the first thought when I say Highbury? many thoughts but I think of that goal scored by Armand Thierry Henry against Liverpool in 2004 the invincible season you know our, our season's kind of rocky we've just uh, lost to Chelsea in the Champions League um, and our premiership title it's not a guarantee we need to beat Liverpool um, it's two all uh, at Highbury it's around the you know midway through the second half Thierry Henry picks up the ball uh, dribbles past uh, Hammond, um, Jamie Carragher's put put to the floor, dribbles past another guy, slots it past the keeper. One of the best goals I think I've seen from from Henry. Clear the Highbury was Arsenal's home from early 1900, so 1913 to 2006. I do think of the prime Arsenal years when I think of that term and that stadium. It was a time where finances weren't the most important thing in football. You could afford to have a stadium that only seated 25 to 30,000. I think that's how much Highbury seated. I think it was like 40. Well, it was more than that. Um, You sort of mentioned it by talking about how how you became an Arsenal fan and Arsenal in the last few years, but just for anyone listening, we're both Arsenal fans. Arsenal in the last 10 years have been have been a disappointment compared to the rest of the league and the other stronger teams, Chelsea, Man United and Liverpool. Would you say it's tough being an Arsenal fan? It's been a difficult last 15, 20 years for sure. But I think supporting any club, you go through ups and downs. And with Arsenal, I feel as if the highs are extremely high and the lows are very low. You know, when we started supporting Arsenal, we we were consistently winning. And we had a great team. Um, and as you said, we were in a stadium where the atmosphere was great. You know, the fans were loving it. And then we moved to a new stadium. We weren't able to kind of compete for the next 10, 15 years. And I think that was tough on everyone because we were used to winning. And when you're used to winning, you just you want to keep winning. And so the last 10 years has been pretty tough. No, I was, I, I was going to say, you know, I, being in New York, there's a, there's a lot of Liverpool fans around me. And there were, there were times where I was actually supporting Liverpool as much as Arsenal just because I wasn't really watching the Arsenal games with many, many fans here or friends. I, would, I have a lot of Liverpool friends, so I would watch the Liverpool games. 
But more recently, the last couple of years, we have definitely gotten better. And I think, you know, football comes in waves and we're definitely on the upward trajectory. So the, the love feelings back for the club um, and, you know, onto bigger things, I think, for Arsenal. Mm. I think it's been depressing being an Arsenal fan in for the last 10 years. Arsene Wenger was the coach of Arsenal for a long, long time, since mid-90s. And once they moved into the Emirates Stadium, which allowed Arsenal to have a bigger stadium, seat more people, it, it was a routine question every year as to how much Arsenal could afford to spend on big players and how much they could pay in wages. And I just never understood it because nowadays we're seeing Arsenal spend a lot of money on a few players and it just begs the question why we weren't able to spend even half that money during the mid to late 2000s where Arsenal had strong chances to win the Premier League if they had invested in a few more players or they had kept some of their stars. Let's go back to 2005, 2006, because that's what we're talking about today. And we're talking about the Champions League final, but it probably serves to talk briefly about what was happening in football in 2005, 2006. As I love to say, it was a very different time in football. It was one of the first few years where finances really came to the forefront in football and the teams with a lot of money were dominating. So Chelsea in 05-06 were dominating the league from an English Premier League perspective. Jose Mourinho was in his first stint as a Chelsea manager and was on his way or just won his second Premier League title. It was a bad time to be in London. Yeah, it was. Um, it was funny. I mean, we've always had a rivalry with Tottenham given our proximity in London and the previous year um, or even that year itself we pipped Tottenham to the fourth place but it was actually a very funny story where the Tottenham team actually got completely ill before their last game and all they had to do was win the last game to finish fourth and for the top four finishes in in England you automatically qualify for the Champions League the Europeans best competition and we were fifth and we somehow managed to pip Tottenham uh, to fourth that year um, in the league and so you know the rivalry between Arsenal and Tottenham was always strong we always had the better of them but that to your point the emergence of Chelsea with you know Roman Abramovich um, and that kind of money influx into the Premier League which we hadn't seen for a long time really started shifting the financial dominance for teams that actually had more money and could invest in more players and so we were always crippled with the fact that we weren't able to spend as much money as our competitors yeah and in 0506 it was less less or so because we just or we were in the process of moving into a new stadium but Arsene Wenger had flagged repeatedly that there would be a little bit of short-term pain for quote-unquote long-term gain by moving into a bigger stadium from a La Liga perspective because the two finalists were Arsenal and Barcelona Barcelona was dominating La Liga and they were on their way to winning another title that year. You look at that team, you compare it to some of the more recent Barcelona teams under Pep Guardiola and other managers. I don't know, You might there might be an argument that that team was just as strong. They had Messi in his early years. They had Ronaldinho, Deco, Iniesta and Xavi in, uh, in their earlier years. So that was a pretty strong Barcelona team. That Very was, strong. That, that probably deserved to, to be in the final. And we can talk about the build-up to that final. I want to focus on Arsenal's build-up because Arsenal has a very complicated relationship with the Champions League. And it's probably something that we can go through. But let's have a look at how they actually ended up making the final. I thought that the run-in to the final for Arsenal was probably you almost felt like the final was just the icing on the cake for them. Yep, for sure. So Arsenal in that, in that European season actually hadn't conceded a goal f past match day two. So for some context, you play six games in the group stages and then you play a knockout round in the round of 16. You play a quarterfinal knockout over two legs. You play a semifinal knockout over two legs. And Arsenal up until the final had only conceded one goal in the entire European run, which is an amazing feat. Normally you can see a lot of goals when you go away from home. And in that run, Arsenal got rid of Juventus, they got rid of Real Madrid, and they got rid of Villarreal. So three you know, teams which, with massive European history, history that we haven't had in the competition. So I think that was a big, big feather in the cap for Arsene Wenger, like getting across and beating those teams. 
especially in a league where um, in the Premier League, the domestic Cup, Cup, Cup competitions, Arsenal wasn't performing very well. So it was kind of seen, the European competition was seen as a, hey, this is somewhere that Arsenal can actually do something. And we still had the remnants of an extremely good team. Let's go into hot seat. The first hot seat I had was Arsene Wenger. And it's for that very point. So in 2005-2006, Arsene Wenger had won three titles for Arsenal. And I'd say Arsenal falls into this hot seat, but he'd won three, three Premier League titles, which is the domestic competition. He'd won a number of FA Cups, I think a number of League Cups. And this Champions League was the further in the cap. The day-in, day-out competition of the Premier League and La Liga is important because that's what fans will watch on a week-in, week-out basis. But the Champions League is a tournament that every fan wants to win because it shows that you're the best team in Europe. I thought Arsenal for a few years, there were probably years before where they were the best team in Europe and they were just eliminated by a lucky goal or a lucky team. And I thought this was their best chance. Yep, good point. I think I mentioned it earlier, but the invincible season that Arsenal had in 2003 and 2004, I think the one qualm that fans have over that season is why we didn't win the Champions League as well that season. And it's kind of a bit of a, a downer, like how we lost to Chelsea in that quarterfinal. Yeah, Wayne Bridge. Wayne Bridge at, at Stamford Bridge. It was pretty sad how oh. that happened. We conceded really late. I was reading this article about all the instances where Arsenal's been eliminated in the Champions League since Arsene Wenger took over as manager. And the number of times Arsenal has lost to a, a lesser team, they lost to Valencia, they lost to Deportiva La Coruña, when, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the, the Spanish team that had a little bit of money at the time, but I don't even think they're in La Liga at the moment. They lost to PSV. They found any excuse to lose. And perhaps we're talking about a time where, as I said, the point was more that finances weren't ruling the game so you had a lot more equal competition amongst a lot of the other leagues so say for example the dutch league they would still have teams that could compete with yep. um, with other teams that meant that arsenal struggled but as we said this was the year they're running into the final a lot of people were saying if it's not now it's never going to happen i had man united on the hot seat they didn't even make it out of the group stage in this year and I think they would have been extremely disappointed with that Alex Ferguson was managing them they were having a disappointing run in the Premier League not having won for a few years with Arsenal winning and then Chelsea winning the next two years so I thought they deserve to be on the hot seat here yeah I think that's fair so Manchester United the rivalry with Arsenal really from 1998 to 2005 really which lit up the Premier League you know we shared three titles Manchester United said shared four and then Chelsea came into the competition and won two straight. But we had obviously won in 2004, Chelsea won in 05, they won in 06. So for Sir Alex Ferguson, the greatest English manager of all time, or Scot Scottish manager, but in England, to not have won the domestic competition for four years, bordering on that, I think was, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and they hadn't, act hadn't won the European competition since the treble in 99 that they won. So yeah, I think that's fair. It is a little disappointing when when you look at the expectations between Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea to a lesser extent, the fact that Manchester United hadn't won for three, four years, the fans were getting restless and they were craving another title, either in the European competition or the domestic competition. And then you compare that now to Arsenal where we haven't, we haven't won for 15 years. It just shows the different expectations in the clubs. Definitely which is, uh, it's just a sign how, how good of a manager Ferguson was, that he was able to continue to produce title-winning title uh, squads that had extreme depth, depth and were able to play fantastic football. It is what it is, but that's why I had Manchester United on the hot seat. They couldn't get out of the group stage. And the other one I had was the defending champions, Liverpool. They actually, so they'd won the previous year, but they'd... They didn't qualify from their league position because they finished outside of the top four. So the UEFA gave them a special dispensation and allowed them to defend their title from the first qualifying round of the competition. And the first qualifying round is even before the group stages. You play a lot of these no-named European teams that win in the uh, less prestigious domestic competitions. So Liverpool made the group stages and progressed 
all the way until they were eliminated by Benfica in the first knockout round. And follow, from that following season, UEFA reserved a berth in the group stage for the defending champions, regardless of their league position. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think we saw that when Chelsea won a Champions League title one year and they'd finished outside of the top four, they were guaranteed a spot next year. So that, this was the year when, when UEFA made those changes. And I think it was a good change. Yep. I think the one point with some of these clubs versus Arsenal is that, to your point, the expectations are a lot higher with clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool. I think they have a very rich European history. They've won the competition many times. Arsenal doesn't have a great history in Europe. So there wasn't really an expectation that we would do anything in Europe, despite how good our team was. So, you know, I think now it comes to obviously finances determine how good you are. But back then, you know, if your tactics and your ability to kind of navigate a knockout fixture was better than the opposition team, you'd obviously, you'd, you'd have a better chance of winning. I think we came into that competition. Arsene Wenger, he's written about this in his autobiography, but he doesn't really change his tactics that much game to game. Um, so it really is not a tactical battle when it comes to Arsenal games. It's can Arsenal outplay you? And it's, and it's as simple as that. I think with a lot of the other coaches, they took the mindset that let's change our tactics. Let's adopt different kind of players for different games. That wasn't the Arsenal approach. The Arsenal approach was gung-ho, let's attack, let's score more goals. Wenger might have something to say about that and say that he did have different tactics, but I, I agree with what you're saying. Perhaps there was a sense of arrogance or a sense that Arsenal, Arsenal style would always win against any tactic. I think that started to wane in the, from the mid-2000s onwards where he came up against the likes of Mourinho and a renewed Ferguson where those teams were just plainly stronger on the face of it and played a different style of football, which Arsenal couldn't compete with. Let's move to top five moments. We'll take a break and be right back after this. Arsene, it didn't go for you. Why do you think that was? Well, uh, I felt we played a great game tonight and uh, we gave absolutely everything and uh, uh, we had a few chances to score the second goal. Uh, as long as you don't score the second one, of course, uh, the last 20 will be difficult. And uh, I believe that the referee made as well a big mistake at a crucial moment in the game because it was 15 minutes to go. I felt that the first goal was offside from Barcelona. Top five moments, Sanjay. I remember this game uh, purely for the fact that I remember waking up at, I think it started at 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. And I missed the first two minutes of it. I remember just turning on the TV and seeing um, Hleb dribble the ball and that's not a top five moment for me but that's my first memory of just turning on the tv and and, and watching this game barcelona fielded a 4-3-3 formation for this game compared to arsenal's 4-4-1-1 and those are the days where i just loved looking at formations and thinking how it was going to affect the style and structure of the game but this was a clash of two, two great teams uh, with, with great strikers, Edo and Henri up front. But my number five moment doesn't have anything to do with the strikers. It has more to do with a refereeing decision and a red card. I had my number five moment, the red card. Jens Lehmann being sent off early in the first half. No doubt it was a foul and I think it was a red card. Yes, it pains me to say it, but I think Jens Lehmann always had something like this in him. He had a bit of a hot streak. You know, we knew that he was one of the more aggressive characters in the Arsenal dressing room. He came in when he was really old, like 34, 35. Um, he had a very successful career in Germany, but he came to Arsenal, you know, was a character, very vivacious as a goalkeeper. And for everyone who, you know, I don't know the goalkeeping position that well, but goalkeepers, the defenders always like to say that we need someone calm behind us someone who can have big presence and just be calm on the ball. I think Jens had the former, he had big presence, but in terms of the calmness, he was prone to make rash decisions. I think if we watch this back, I think he, this was a, a rash decision. Um, he came out and he had to get the ball um, in that position because he was out of his box. Um, lucky, you know, back in those days, there was a thing of double jeopardy where you could actually concede a penalty if you'd made a foul in the box and also get sent off. Luckily, that didn't happen because it was outside the box and Barcelona missed the free kick. But I think this was a, yeah, this was a red card. 
Football pundit Mark Lawrence, he said after the game, quote, the game changed when uh, when Arsenal goalkeeper Lehmann was sent off. Arsene Wenger agreed. He said when Jens got sent off, that left us with 70 minutes to play with 10 against 11 against a team that retains the ball very well. Basically, Arsenal were coming up against their Spanish, the Spanish Arsenal, and perhaps a, 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 a team that could retain the ball better than Arsenal could. And it clearly changed the game. I think there was a sense of arrogance from Lehman with how he was keeping throughout the competition. As you said, he hadn't conceded during the knockout stages. He was probably assuming that anything he did would, would, would work in the Champions League. And it was a fantastic Ronaldinho pass. He probably, Edo probably would have scored had Lehman not fouled him. I think we were somewhat lucky that the foul was just outside the penalty box because, as you say, it could have been a red card and a penalty and I think Arsenal would have... There would have, there would have been no coming back. Once you, sc- once you score against 10 minutes, it's very hard to come back. So that's my number five. Number four is the Sol Campbell header. This came against the run of play. I was shocked that we took the lead. It came from a pretty debatable foul. Abui, Emmanuel Abui, who's been much maligned by Arsenal fans over the years, got a foul outside the box and you'd love, you'd love to see it. An Englishman just coming in, fantastic header. All right. George Campbell! Oh, fantastic goal. I think the only way that we were scoring was from like a set piece or something like, even though we did have an, a couple of chances to score, we can get to that later. But Sol Campbell for us, what a signing he was. We got him from Tottenham, our rivals, the first big signature from like an English rival team to another rival team. You never really saw that in England. Um, and he played fantastically for four years. This was, I think, his probably, you know, close to his apex moment, I think, in his career like scoring the Champions League final against Barcelona, towering header. What a player. I loved him. But I don't think people appreciate the fact that he had come from Tottenham. And for any non-football fans out there, if you use an AFL context, that's akin to going from Carlton to Collingwood. In rugby league, it's almost akin... And you could you wouldn't be able to do it, but it's almost akin to playing for Queensland and then somehow switching your allegiances and playing for New South Wales in, in the rugby league. And uh, it's akin to going from Australia and then deciding to play for New Zealand in cricket. It doesn't make sense. And that's what Sol Campbell did, but he's an Arsenal legend. It was a great goal, came against the run of play. I loved it. My number three moment was, it's not a, it's, it wasn't actually a moment on the pitch, but it was the introduction of Henrik Larsson to the game. Yep. Totally. Henrik Larsson probably gets forgotten in history because he's one of those strikers or forwards that he didn't have the most goals in history, but he he really had a great career. He made his name, I think, at, at Celtic back in the days when there was a competition in the Scottish Premier League between Celtic and the Rangers. There still is now, but back then it was it was a heated rivalry. He was a great player. He was a Swede, I think, from memory. And the introduction of Henry Glass into this game completely changed the dynamic of the game. He brought a sense of calmness to the Barcelona forward line and was that connection or that connecting piece to bring back a little bit of control and, get, and feed the ball to Edo and others up front. I thought that was a top three. That was a genius moment in the match by Barcelona and really changed the game. Yep. Agreed. Um, Henrik Larsson was actually awarded an MBE for services to football as well. He had a great career, as you said, Celtic. He even played for Manchester United, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think um, so. For a little bit. For a little bit. So he's played for some great clubs, Barcelona, Manchester United, Celtic, three of the best clubs in each of these regions. A Swede, you know, we now think of Zlatan Ibrahimovic as, you know, the best Swede to have ever played. But I think before Zlatan, it was Henrik Larsson. To your point... The Barcelona wasn't really playing that well in that game. I think we could have scored a couple of goals. Um, but Ronald, they had Ronaldinho, they had Deco. So two players who were extremely creative. 
And to your point, Larson kind of was the link there. So when he came on, he, he definitely disrupted things. And Thierry Henry paid tribute to Larson's contribution. He said, people always talk about Ronaldinho, Eto, and everyone else, but I didn't see them today. I saw Henrik Larson. He came on, he changed the game. That is what killed the game. Sometimes you talk about Ronaldinho and Edo and people like that. You need to talk about the proper footballer who made the difference. And that was Henrik Larsson tonight, end quote. It's a good shout out. Fantastic shout out for, for Mr. Larsson. My number two moment, I'm going through these quickly because it's depressing to talk about them. And they're not really number two and number one moments, but I suppose when we're talking about a final, they have to be the goals. Number two was the Eto goal. Brings the game back. Think about this. Arsenal's playing with 10 men. They're fatigued. They're defending for their lives. It's one, it's one nil up to the Arsenal up until the 75th minute. And then Larson creates some space, gets it to Eto. I think it was an Iniesta pass to Eto. There's a question whether it's offside or not. And I perhaps want to discuss that when we talk about VAR, whether it's been good for the game. But Eto scores and you almost felt as if the Arsenal challenge or the Arsenal resistance was falling away with that goal. Yep, totally. I think I was listening to a, a lot of Arsenal fans memories of this game going to the start um, in, to the game in Paris, and they felt that as long as we were one nil up, we were a chance of winning the game. Um, and with ten men, obviously, if you concede, people thought, okay, the game's done because we're going to concede another goal. And as soon as Eto scored, the complete atmosphere of the game changed. The fans lost their voice; they weren't singing. The players were kind of down. Um, we weren't able to change the game that much from the bench and we weren't able to bring on a couple of our attacking substitutes that we had. We had Robin Van Persie, we had Dennis Burkamp on the bench, never got on, you know, two of the best Dutch players to have ever played the game. I, I mean, RVP, we have, we can have another debate about, um, but yeah, totally. We weren't able to, to do anything after that goal. Yeah. And it goes into our number one moment, which cascaded from Eto's goal the Arsenal shoulders they basically sink Barcelona's feeling excited feeling as if we now have the game we can win this in the last 10 minutes and Giuliano Belletti a Brazilian footballer scores a, a a pretty good goal in the circumstances I thought it was some shoddy keeping from uh substitute keeper Manuel Almunia and I want to do. I want to go back to a segment I used to do most disappointing performances where we can talk about this, but it has to be the number one moment. It's a clutch goal. If it was Arsenal scoring two goals in the last 15 minutes, we'd be talking about it for the next 50 years. So we've got to give credit to Barcelona. They played well. That goal sealed the deal for Barcelona. It basically, Arsenal had no more chances afterwards. They were too f- tired, too fatigued to do anything, and it sealed the deal. Yep. Um, I wanted to say this in your, I think if you're doing a would you believe it moment, Giuliano Belletti's only goal that he's ever scored in the Champions League was in the final against Arsenal. And it comes up, trumps for them when they most needed it. We weren't, look, when it was 1-1, I wasn't really expecting us to do anything, like maybe take it to, to extra time and maybe somehow get to penalties. But that goal, it, it pierced something in my heart when I saw that. Because to your point, you got up, two minutes into the game. I think I'm actually missed the first 20 minutes of this game. So I actually only watched the, the red card on replay. Um, so I, I, you know, I watched the Sol Campbell goal, but this was just piercing to watch, you know, when they scored, it was, it was a feeling like everything's lost or hope. I'm depressed just thinking about it and talking about it, but we've got to do it. We've got to soldier on. I but think what makes this harder is that at the time you thought that we'd be back. You and did. This is, this is a new Arsenal team. But. There, was, there was a sense of, going back to the context point, there was a sense of optimism as an Arsenal fan. Yes, Wenger had spoken about the short-term pain with moving to Emirates and Arsenal subsequently moved into the Emirates later that year in July. This game was in May, so just two months later. And you felt, hey, we're moving into a new stadium. We're going to have finances in the long term. We're going to be able to afford some players and we'll be back but Arsenal's never made it back to the Champions League final. So that's what make, that that's what hurts more. The post-match reaction, I wanted to focus on a quote from Arsene Wenger. He, he was actually asked in 2020, 
if he would swap the invincible season in 2004 for a Champions League crown. And Wenger said, my biggest regret is that to win the Champions League in 2006 would have crowned that period and that generation, and it is what they deserved. But it wasn't to be, and you have to live with that. So he didn't, so he didn't directly say whether he would swap, swap that, because I think that would be disrespectful to the Invincibles team. But this was a tournament that he really needed to win to seal the resume, the CV. It's the yep. one missing thing in his CV, and I think his quote reflects that. It is what it is, and we might move into would you believe that. You've mentioned one of the would you believes that. You also, you also ruined my other would you believe that, which was the Jens Lehmann not conceding a goal um, in the knockout stage, which is actually quite unbelievable when you think about it, given Arsenal went up against the likes of Juventus, a strong Villarreal team, a Real Madrid team that we now call the Galacticos. They, they were some teams that, that Arsenal went up against. The only other point I wanted to mention was between 98, 99 and 2016, Arsenal actually qualified in 19 successive UEFA Champions League seasons, which is an English football record. And it's only surpassed in Europe by Real Madrid, who, well, who qualified 19 times um, in succession. I think if you qualified for the top four back in the day, it was seen as an okay achievement because there were four big clubs in England at the time, winner Arsenal, Manchester United, Chelsea and Liverpool. I think now the top four has become very difficult to crack into because now you have the likes of Manchester City, you have Newcastle emerging, you have Tottenham. So you have a lot of these other clubs fighting for four places and now it's actually an achievement to, to finish in the top four. But I think if you gave any club 19 consecutive finishes in the top four and Arsene Wenger was the model of consistency at the time, even though we never won it that many times, you'd take that in a heartbeat. So that's a pretty impressive feat. The Don Sanj. I don't know if this final created a Don or Apex performance, but I didn't actually appreciate the point you made about Giuliano Belletti. I think in some sense, he must be the Don because he never scored in another Champions League game. We should give him that title. I want to I want to talk about the most disappointing performance. I'll call it the trash in a can performance, <laughs> as Sid and I lo love to say. I want to focus on two players, but the first I want to focus on is Thierry Henry. Oh wow! I love the lad. He's Arsenal's greatest striker. There's an argument that he is the English Premier League's greatest forward. A lot of impartial, objective analysts do say it's Thierry Henry ahead of the likes of Anissel Roy. Wayne Rooney, among others. Thierry Henry had three, I think it was three clear-cut chances on goal, which in any other game in the Premier League or in a non-finals Champions League, you would have expected him to score. And for some reason, Victor Valdez played like the greatest goalkeeper at the time and saved all three of them. I couldn't believe that he spurned those chances and this was when Arsenal had taken the lead if Arsenal had scored one more goal I think they would have won the 2-0 lead even with 10 men would have been enough totally um so I I mean I agree with you in that Thierry Henry disappointed in the final I don't think it was it, it deserves to be the trash in the can performance because I would never do that to Thierry because I just can't like I can't stomach it but you know he at the time Thierry was labeled a flat track bully by many. You know, Jose Mourinho said that he only scores against small teams. Did he famously did say Jose that. say that of he said Thierry? That wow. Of Thierry. And Thierry took obviously massive offense to that. And then he went out and then he scored um, against Mourinho um, famously. But in terms of Thierry Henry, I mean, to your point, he was the best striker in the Premier League by a distance, I think, for about an eight year period, 98 to 2006. He was a talisman. He would have scored a couple of those chances, I think, on any other day. I think there was a couple of amazing saves. I think the first chance he creates by himself, like Abue pings it into him. He takes an amazing first touch and the keeper is so close to him that he doesn't have the chance to kind of finish it in the corner. So maybe we give him a pass on that. But the second one, yeah, he probably should have scored that. I think he'd admit that. Watching a Sky Sports retro video afterwards, Thierry admits that he's the biggest critic of himself. Um, and he doesn't need the press to tell him that he flopped in that final. But he 
he couldn't sleep for weeks. He cried. He didn't know what to do with himself. Um, and it's actually really sad because he ended up winning the, the Champions League for Barcelona. But he said that he would have replaced that by um, winning with Arsenal any day of the week. Here's uh, Henri getting cleared. It's Thierry Henry! He scored! He scored for Arsenal in the Bernabeu! No more, no less than they merit! Arsenal have been the thrusting force of this tie. Thierry Henry, the gunner Galactico. It is Real Madrid nil. Arsenal won. The other one was Manuel Amunia. But I don't want to give him the award because he wasn't expected to play. But I will never understand Arsene Wenger's reluctance to go out and find a proper world-class backup keeper. Almunia was not a Premier League or English uh, or a, an Arsenal-level keeper. He never reached that level. And I'm entitled to talk about it because I played for Macquarie Dragons under 10s <laughs> as a keeper. So that's my credentials to talk about it. All kidding aside, it just felt that he was above his head in this game. His, those two goals that he let in, I think a better keeper would have probably blocked the second goal. Almunia probably reflects a lot of Arsenal's failings in the mid-2000s because of Wenger's reluctance to go out and spend. He, would, uh, he had a penchant for just keeping or holding on to those sort of players and it reflects the fact that we lost the game and he, he contributed to that loss. Totally. Um, the couple of points here is that when, when Arsenal were successful, we had an amazing back four, four defenders, and we had an amazing keeper, David Seaman, who was the English number one for close to 10 years, often regarded as the best English keeper ever. So Arsene Wenger, when he came to Arsenal, inherited a back four and a, and a goalkeeper, which were the best in the league, even though we weren't winning. So Arsene never had to, to really build a defense, like in the mold that, you know, would win, would, would win titles. He already had a very good defense, um, and he never really replaced... David Seaman, you know, Jens Lehmann played for a couple of years for us, never a long period. And then we went to Manuel Almunia, never had a defensive midfielder, never had a proper back four, never had a proper goalkeeper. And that's why I think to your point, we never really won anything. Remember the Titans? Would you remember this event in 40 years? I'm saying no. And the reason I'm saying no is Barcelona went on to win more Champions League trophies. And from an Arsenal perspective, while it was the only time they made the final, I don't think you're going to remember a Champions League tournament just because your team made the final. Tottenham recently made the final where they lost to Liverpool. I don't think Tottenham fans are saying, oh, we're going to remember this title in 40 years. That's why I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah, totally agreed. I think if we want to honestly think about this, Barcelona's won three Champions Leagues. You know, we've made a couple of finals. The only reason we're talking about this is because we haven't made another Champions League final since. Exactly. And it was the moment where I think if we reflect, Arsene Wenger kind of, you know, nearly apexed his career. I mean, you could argue that 2007 was the peak of Arsene Wenger. Um, and we, it was a downward spiral ever, ever since then to, to his departure in 2018. So I want to finish with this embrace debate. And it leans in from what you were just talking about with Wenger. The first topic is how do we assess Wenger's or Arsene Wenger's career? Was it a success or a failure? Embrace debate. Look, I'm going to say it was a success. And the reason I say that is that I like to split Arsene Wenger's career into two halves. I think the first half of his career was 1997 to 2007. And the second half was 2008 to 2018. And I think you can distinctly put those into two categories. The first 10 years, Arsene's successful time at Arsenal. He won three league titles. We had the invincible season. We made the Champions League final. We had some of the best players in the world. Arsene couldn't do anything wrong. And he changed the style of how Arsenal played football. Before that, it was one nil to the Arsenal. We were a defensive team. He came in, he changed the diets. He changed the way that we trained. He changed the coaches. He brought in foreign influences. Arsenal became the first team in the English Premier League to field 11 non-English players, which is an interesting stat. Before that, you know, you'd have Manchester United who had seven or eight English players in the starting 11 coming up against an Arsenal team that didn't know how to speak English, basically. And so I think that first 10 years was successful. The second 10 years, you can talk about it really, I think, you know, it pains you to talk about it, but it was an unsuccessful, I would say it was a failure the second 10 years. 
But for the fact that he won three league titles and we remember him still pretty fondly, I would still say it was a success. Interesting point. I think if you ask Pierce Morgan, he's probably going failure. <laughs> Pierce Morgan, renowned Arsenal fan. I think this question, it's an unfair question, but it's a very undisputed first take sort of question. Was it a success or failure? It's hot or cold. You can't go in between. I want to... I don't think you can just divide the the period and say, well, the first half was a success, the second half was a failure. I think you have to look at it the whole period. Mm. And I think you also need to be quite critical in the analysis. It's it's not as simple as to say, well, he won three titles. How can you be how can you be considered a failure if you win three Premier League titles? But Arsene Wenger did a well, Arsenal were very poor in from 2006, 2007 onwards. Arsenal had a few challenges to win the league and failed. So they have Arsenal has not won a title since 2003, 2004, the Invincibles year. And I think that is a sad reflection on the team. For a team when Arsenal when Arsenal took over in the mid mid nineties, it was Arsenal and Man United vying for a title. You could say they were even. But during that period, just even from when until um, Alex Ferguson retired, Alex Ferguson won, I think, three times the Premier Leagues that Arsene Wenger won. And I don't want to put that down to just finances. I thought that they were even teams. So even against his own rival, Arsenal couldn't compete in the domestic level. Yes, they won FA Cups. But, I mean, how often do we reminisce about FA Cups? Maybe... They're forgotten. Yeah. We don't, we don't really give them much credence. I, it's an important trophy, but if we're analyzing or evaluating a manager or a top team's manager, we look at domestic titles and we look at Champions League trophies. Arsene was not able to win a Champions League trophy. Sometimes you might argue there's a bit of luck involved in that, but he only made one final, failed there. And I thought that the three titles did not reflect how good he could have been for a manager in Arsene Wenger's position he should have expected or should have expected to have won five or six titles to be even or to to be even with Jose Mourinho who managed in the Premier League for Chelsea for a much shorter time period Jose Mourinho managed Chelsea for five or six years and won three titles and then to say well Arsene Wenger equals Jose Mourinho in titles and managed for three times the number of years, I think is a, is a reflection on perhaps leans me to say it was more of a failure given the expectations we had for Arsenal. So, that, I mean, these are really good points that I have opposition with in a couple of them. And I think you're coming from the mindset of success and Arsenal is a, is a successful driven club. It's a trophy driven club. The expectation is always to win the domestic cup competition. Mind you, I love league. Arsene Wenger. But I also want to be objective in the analysis, which is if, if, if we were talking about Leicester City and Arsene Wenger takes them over and wins three titles, then he's the most successful manager probably in history because the expectations was much, was much lower. But Arsene Wenger is the author of his own misfortune at times because he refused to be open about some of the financial issues or he wouldn't be clear with certain issues. When Arsenal, when Arsenal moved to the Emirates and had chances to win titles, there was a failure on Arsenal to spend even a little bit more money to guarantee a title. How many times would Arsenal be in the lead in January or December? And if not for, if they hadn't, if had they signed one or two additional players, I think they would have won the title. Yeah, but, it's a no, that's, it's a fair point. I think, you know, we had ownership at the time that was different. Um, the financial power of Arsenal 15 years ago wasn't the same as what it is now with the, the TV rights and how much money the English Premier League makes and how much the American owners are now willing to spend. But I think I make an analogy and with having a lot of Liverpool fans um, as friends here. I look at Jurgen Klopp, someone who took over Liverpool in 2015, has now been there for close to eight years, bordering on nine years has revolutionized Liverpool from a mid-table club at the time, which they honestly were, to a premiership fighting team every year. If you look at Jurgen Klopp's dynasty at Liverpool, he's only won one premiership. 
one one league title in close to nine years. And yes, I admit they're coming up against Manchester City, who was a juggernaut in itself with Pep Guardiola, but we also came against Sir Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho for the first 12 years of Arsene Wenger. And if you were to say that Jurgen Klopp was a failure at Liverpool, I don't think any Liverpool fan anywhere in the world would would agree with you. I do, I think they would tell you that it was an it's been a an unbelievable success. And yes, Jurgen Klopp has won a Champions League, so he's won a Champions League and he's won a domestic league title, two trophies in nine years. I don't think that's a fantastic record for someone who's going to be remembered as one of the greatest English Premier League managers to have managed. I think we're saying that's that the analogy that I'd like to make with Wenger. But you're also we're saying that in the moment. You, a lot of this you have to do on reflection and maybe Jurgen Klopp if he doesn't win another title in five or six years time where he's no longer managing Liverpool that's when I think the question should be had whether he is a all-time manager and it might not be that it might be that fans have a different view at that point because there's a, there a few more years on and I think that's the case with Wenger I think Wenger also he was a manager but he was also the general manager for the team he controlled who they would sign and who they wouldn't. Uh, yeah. There's an argument that David Dean for Arsene, Arsenal was in control of that, but Wenger was essentially the, the puppeteer for it. Yeah, And totally. therefore he needs to take some blame for the poor signings or the failure to reinforce the squad at certain key periods. And if he wants to take on the mantle of GM and manager, then he has to take the blame when, when it didn't work out. And I'm, I obviously am Arsenal, one of Arsenal's biggest fans, and I love Arsene Wenger, but it's more when you critically evaluate it, I think there's an argument that it wasn't as su- successful as it should have been. Anyway, that's just a, it's just a fun debate topic. We both love Arsene Wenger, and if Ars- Arsene Wenger ever listens to the show, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, let's finish with this, Ange. Is VAR good for football? Oh, man. It's a... Terrible question. It's actually a good question as well. But I hate VAR because as a football fan, the one thing that I love doing is celebrating goals. And you don't get many goals in a game. So you might get, on average, let's just say the average game has two to three goals. So in a 90-minute span, you're celebrating like aggressively twice or thrice. What VAR's done, in my opinion, is that it kind of mutes your celebration a little bit because you're always wondering is this goal actually legitimate? Like, or am I offside? Have I done something? Have I kicked someone on the toe? Is there a foul in the buildup? Have I, is my eyebrow offside? Like, have I looked at the ref wrong? Am I going to get charged for something upon replay? And that's something which I think reduces from the love of sport, which is an emotional thing that I love going through. Sport for me is something where I, I take myself away from my daily life and I throw myself into something and I love it. And I know you love it too. Like the thrill of it, the, you just, you submit yourself to something which is just something which isn't normal. Um, and that's what every fan will tell you. It's just a great, it's an amazing experience. And I think VAR for me, it detracts a little bit because upon reflection, the last couple of years, they've made some big, big time errors for something which should be quite objective. Like VAR came in to be objective. If you're offside, you're offside. VAR will tell you. But I think what's happened is that it's taken a long time to make refereeing decisions. It's taken five to 10 minutes. The game's a lot slower referees um i i think the the whole point of it was that referees would be comfortable making big big calls but i think it's actually reduced that like the ref the refs aren't actually as willing to make big calls um and the var upon reflection also don't want to overturn decisions so we've seen that in a lot of other sports with cricket when there is some sub subjectivity you know um there's been like the chances of of drs being very objective because it tells you if something's out, tells you if something's not out. VAR has complicated things in a lot of different ways with offsides, with refereeing red cards. It doesn't allow the VAR to make a, a, a good decision, in my opinion. We've seen a lot, of, a lot of bad ones recently. So in my opinion, I think I don't like it. I think VAR is needed for the sport because we had to overcome situations where referees would just, were in the back pockets of Alex Ferguson and... <laughs> some of the Serie A teams, we've, recent, we've recently seen some of those teams in the last 10 years um, received huge fines and um, essentially get relegated for um, having agreements with certain referees. I think VAR is good for the sport, but I agree with you. It has 
just taken away from the emotional aspect of sport, being able to celebrate goals because you're constantly thinking about whether there's a foul or whether there's a um, an offside call. I think it can be tweaked a little bit. I agree with VAR being used for offside calls because it's quite uh, it's it's um, it's quite clear whether it's offside or not using that computer they're able to say this person was offside. I think they could tweak the rules with offside because I don't essentially agree that if your arm is ahead of the defender... Well, they changed that, that this year. Yeah, and yeah. I think it was needed to change that because it's just... it that That's getting too much into the minutia of, of the sport. But one thing I think they could tweak with VAR is the foul in the build-up to play. If a referee does not call a foul, I don't think VAR should change that. And I also don't think VAR should call should be used for penalties in the box where players are tugging at each other. And I don't think VAR has a role there. That's just a penalty should just be called on the spot by a referee if the referee sees mm. that penalty. I think VAR should only be used for those calls which don't require a a judgment call or discretion var should not be used for discretion rather it should just be used where it's it, like in tennis if it's in or out that's where the, the the replay is used in a similar context that's where it should be used in football yes that's going to lead to situations where the referee doesn't see a foul but that's football that's any sport that's why we love it you know what we actually love talking about the fouls that are missed because it, it's great for that, that's what fans love to talk about. They love to complain about sport. And it has removed one aspect of that. But I still think it's important for the sport so that the um, it, it has equalized the sport and removes howlers. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I think net-net, it, it should have been positive for the sport. I just think we're, through, we're going through a phase where we're trying to understand how to use the technology. So it's, it's not great right now. Very good, Sanjay. Great episode. Uh, it was not an easy one to talk about, given it's not one that we are happy reflecting on, but enjoyed it and I'll see you soon. See you, mate. Thank you. Bye.